This is where the industry insiders come to play. The download on the download, movers and shakers off the course, and the pros inside the ropes. Welcome to Slice with Brian Bushlack. Well, most of us will never know what it's like to play golf for a living or coach it or teach it. Only a select few who are good enough to do both in their lifetime. The ability to not only play a competitive game, but also sit back and analyze and help others improve their game. In America, the Harmon name has become synonymous with top teaching, primarily thanks to Butch, his work with Tiger, DJ, Ricky, and others, but also Bill, who caddied for his good friend Jay Haas for a number of years and now teaches at the Bill Harmon Performance Center at the beautiful Toscana Country Club in Indian Wells. This show, though, and this story... Not about swinging a stick at a ball, as Billy calls it. I'm certainly not the only one who equates life to golf or golf to life. The ups and downs and around mirror what we face in everyday life. And Bill Harmon is living proof. He was a stud golfer back in his youth, destined to follow in his father Claude's footsteps, become a top professional and perhaps even contend or win a major. But that didn't happen. All that talent, all that potential, wasted when Bill got into alcohol and drugs and not only derailed his golf game, but his life. The good news is he got a mulligan, and he made the most of it. I sat down with Bill in between lessons at Toscana to find out what it was like growing up with his brothers and his dad, who was one of the top golf professionals in America and a legend. Well, in our case, it wasn't, he wasn't just a golf pro. He was a master's champion, so he was a very special golf pro. I don't think that, you know, growing up, the four Harmon brothers, we all played golf. We were all relatively good, decent players. And we never really thought it was that odd. Uh, I think until we got older that the four Harmon brothers actually got involved in the same business that their dad got in with a modicum of success and so for years we were kind of thought of as the four Harmon brothers we never really figured out what all that meant then I think as we got older and we had our own families and we realized that maybe it was kind of odd that the four boys went into the same basically the same field and for the most part we all had a modicum of success and I think then it kind of dawned on us that uh, Maybe it was kind of pretty cool to be a, be a Harmon for that reason. But I think at the end of the day, we're still just brothers. You know, if I see Butch, I don't ask him about swing theory or anything like that. So I think fortunately for us, golf is kind of the glue that kept us together. All of us have gone on our own way, basically. Uh, none of us have ever really worked for each other or with each other. And so it's nice now to look back at it as we're kind of old and gray and a bunch of old bulls and look back on it and say, uh, you know, it's been a pretty damn good run for the Harmon family. Were you guys competitive with each other growing up? Yeah, I think we were, you know, because we were all pretty good junior players. And by the time I got to about 14, uh, I was as good as my older brothers were. So at that point in time, no, we never liked losing to each other. So 
uh, I don't think we we were competitive once we got into the golf world and got our jobs and things like that. In fact, Butch and I took very unusual. Uh, uh, we both had to get our butts kicked a whole lot before we finally figured something out. And the two middle brothers, Craig and Dick, went. Uh, Craig was the head pro at Oak Hill Country Club in Rochester, New York at age 25, and Dick went to River Oaks in Houston. Butch and I kind of orbited the planet for about two decades, and when we finally landed, we uh, seemed to be figuring some things out. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about orbiting the planet for you, because uh, you had lots of opportunities, and you end up as one of the top caddies on the PGA Tour. You were a great, great player in your own right. So how did you make that transition from being a phenomenal player to carrying the bag? Well, in my case, I didn't have a choice. You know, somewhere early on, I chose alcohol and drugs over being a good player. And so I made a lot of wrong choices, a lot of wrong turns. So when I got to caddy for Jay Haas, to be honest with you, it was kind of a way to survive in in the golf business. Uh, Little did I know that Jay would become probably the greatest friend I've ever had other than my brother's. Little did I know that I would, you know, last 10 years out there and have some great thrills And I think looking back on it, uh, in many ways, Jay kind of saved my life because he gave me a reason to be loyal, a reason to show up, suit up and show up. And then shortly after I quit working for Jay, I'd gotten married and there was an intervention done. And uh, that was over 26 years ago. And I haven't had a drink or a drug since. But looking back on it, my only frustration is, is that I will never know if I would have been a good player. You know, I'll never say I would have been had I not done A, B, or C. I think the frustration is you never know, you know. But I'm grateful to have the life that I have today, to be here at Toscana, to teach. And uh, I've got a great family, two great boys. And uh, I just had to go through whatever I went through to get to where I am today. So uh, in retrospect, I'm glad that I lived to tell this story because <laughs> there was a time then it might not have been the case. So I, I just feel very fortunate to to be able to do what I do, to be honest with you. I don't look back on that at all. You know, for all of us, you get to a point in life where I used to say, I don't have any regrets. What happened, happened. I made mistakes. Some of them I learned from. Mm-hmm. Others, it took a while longer. Yeah. But that's the life and that's the hand I was dealt. And As I got older, I started to think, you know what? I kind of do have some regrets. And there are some things I wish I could have back now with the experience I have to have done them differently. Is that how you feel? Or are you set on, hey, it happened and that's the way it went? No, the only way um, I would ever feel that way is that if you could promise me if things happened differently, that I would still have the same wife and the same two sons then maybe I would go there. But you can't make that promise. And so whatever it took for me to get to be here sitting with you today, what I've done some things differently, of course, but you'd still have to promise me I'd have the same wife and the same two sons, and you can't do that because I I met my wife, Caddy, and for Jay. And and so when I look at uh, the fullness of my life, I'm just lucky to be honest with you, that uh, when the intervention was done, that I listened. A lot of people don't listen, and and I wasn't a good listener back then, so I don't know what the hell happened that night, but I, I decided that I wanted to change my life, and I did. 
So I really don't have regrets per se because my life is uh, what it is today. So I look back on the bad decisions I make and don't want to ever go back there and, and live the life that I had. But I use that to fuel my life today. I don't live there. I don't live in guilt and remorse over it. I've already dealt with it. And so I've had a, an unbelievable life. And, and Brian, to be honest with you, I'm a very ordinary guy that's lived an extraordinary life because of golf, because of the game of golf. And very humble. One of the great golf instructors of this generation, Bill Harmon here at Toscana Country Club. To put this in perspective for our audience, tell us where you were. What was your life like during that period prior to the intervention? What, what were you going through? Well, I think initially it was all fun, fun and games. And probably the downside of caddying for Jay in that regard is, you know, I, I can make a living and I could support myself. So the denial system is very complex for many of us alcoholics and addicts. And, and, and my denial system said that if I was suiting up, showing up, doing a job, supporting myself, you couldn't touch me. But my life changed dramatically when uh, my wife was pregnant with our first son. And she asked me to uh, see if I could quit drinking and drugging and all that stuff. And I said yes. And I think as I look back, I quit for maybe two or three weeks. And then one day she found some cocaine in one of my coat pockets and she left. And I'd love to say that, you know, I quit after that, but I didn't. And then my son was born on June 1st, 1992, and it was kind of a cold, dreary day in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and we put him in the back seat of the car. And I remember looking in the back seat and never loving anything like I love that kid. And then I remember looking out the window and never hating anybody more than I hated myself. And so there was an emotional balance being there that I knew I was not going to be able to stay on. And I was uh, very, very, a uh, lot of self-loathing. This kid didn't deserve to have an alcoholic and a drug addict for a father. And I'd love to tell you I quit that day. Then about a month later, uh, he woke up in the morning like he always did at 2, and my wife got up to feed him. And I remember being irritated that he woke me up. You know, I mean, if she wasn't here, I couldn't take care of this boy because I was in the throes of my disease or whatever it is. I don't know what it is. And then shortly after that, the intervention came. So I think it came at a right time when I was running the gamut of the hate, self-hate, self-loathing, just all of it, because of my son, really. And I would love to tell you, certainly my wife was worthy of me quitting, but I didn't. I was an addict, and I thought like an addict. So when the intervention was done, I felt relief. I had no fight in me. I've joked with the two people that did the intervention. They knew I was going to tell them where to stick it. <laughs> and I didn't. I said, hey, I'm ready. You know, what do I need to do? So my bottom kind of came when my son was born. That's where I could no longer justify bringing somebody into the world with a wife that just wanted a normal life, you know, and be a, have a good home life for her son. And so neither one of my kids have ever seen their dad drink or drug, and that's probably the thing I'm most proud of in my life. Bill Harmon going on 27 years of sobriety and living every day to the fullest. And if you hang around him long enough, you'll learn more about life than golf, that's for sure. Uh, Next up, Bill shares more of his journey and the impact he's had on others and 
Right now, we'll share a Slice Golf promo with Cutter and Buck. 20% off site-wide. Just plug in the code CBLIFE, and you'll get the friend of a friend discount. Only at CutterandBuck.com. Thanks for downloading Slice with Brian Bushlack, where the industry insiders talk shop. Continuing our conversation with Bill Harmon on location at Toscana Country Club in Indian Wells. And by the way, this place is spectacular. Two Jack Nicholas signature courses, and they're very different. The South Course is wall to wall grass and Really, one of my favorite courses here. The other, a little more of a desert feel to it. Uh, I didn't play too well that day. It was like maybe 110 degrees out. That might have had something to do with it. At least that's my excuse. Anyway, love this club, and it's where you'll find the best instructor in town, Bill Harmon. And we continue our conversation now as Bill shares his journey from drug and alcohol addiction to sobriety and his passion for sharing his story and helping others. Was it easy, or were you able to just flip the switch? Talk about that process of that transition. Uh, To me, obviously, you know, when you've gotten loaded every day for about 25 years to wake up one day and not get loaded, I'm not going to say it was easy, but I will say that I didn't fight it because I was so relieved that I didn't have to feel the way I felt in that car and that night, you know. And so to me, anything would be better than that. Now, the process itself is interesting. And, and what's interesting about it until you get involved in recovery is I didn't really have a drinking or drug problem. I had a me problem. You know, I had a hole in my soul and I filled it with alcohol and drugs. And once I identified what that stuff was and filled it with recovery instead of anesthesia. So getting sober is, in many ways, not that hard. Staying sober uh, becomes the challenge. You know, so if someone would have told me on August 26, 1992, that I'd be 26-plus years sober, I'd say, you're crazy, you know. But I am. And life is much easier this way. So I would, I would hate to tell the people out there that have the same problem I have that it's hard. I actually think it's easy because your life is easier. I think living the other way is really hard. So to me, I look at this as being a much, much easier way to live. And I think a lot of people don't get there because they don't last long enough in recovery to to see the miracles and uh, you know you wake up one day and you don't desire a drink or a drug and you go well that's weird mm-hmm. you know and I don't really know how it happens I think you just have to surrender to it and you have to you have to admit to your innermost self that you know it kicked your ass I give the best analogy I ever heard is the bully that gets you in a headlock at school when you're a kid. And he says, do you give? And, of course, you don't because you're a tough guy, you know. And he squeezes it a little harder, you give? No. Well, pretty soon you can't breathe. <laughs> and your face is red and you're going to die unless you give. And you finally say, I give. And the guy lets go over and you go, why didn't I give the first time? <laughs> why did I wait so long? What was I trying to prove? So, to be honest with you, Brian, I wouldn't want to tell everybody that it's hard. I think the life is so much easier this way that uh, I was at a meeting this morning and there was a young girl who was a newcomer. 
And as I was walking out, I put my arm on her shoulder and I said, I got one thing to say to you, recovery is a gift, not a sentence. And if you look at it as a gift and respect it, your life will get better. And that's what happened to me. I respect it every day. With Bill Harmon at Toscana Country Club. I can't believe we haven't talked swing theory. No, more. We're getting to that, okay? We're getting to that. I care less about that. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, yeah, I need some help. So we're talking about that for sure. So, you know, we know you in the golf world Mm -hmm. uh, as an instructor, the Harmon name. You talked about this recovery process and, and just this morning the people in that that group that meeting they know you as someone completely different right yeah 99 percent of the people don't know that i even play golf because i don't talk about golf i go to my meetings as an alcoholic not as a golfer so i've been able to separate the two and oddly enough one of the oddities of this malady or disease is that when you surrender to it you realize that uh, identifying as an alcoholic changes your life. When I identified as a golf pro or one of the Harmon brothers, that didn't change my life. And so everything that I have in my life today is a result of being clean and sober. And so I was one of the lucky ones that I understood that I had to put that first. And when I got sober, my professional career got better. And I started getting, uh, you know, a modicum of uh, notoriety. I got to say a modicum on your brother's butch because it's like the Toledo Mud Hens playing the New York Yankees. <laughs> so I, I get that, okay? <laughs> but oddly enough, what I thought I wanted in life really wasn't that important to me because whatever notoriety or whatever happens in that regard, once again, it's a gift of being clean and sober. So all the things I thought I wanted really weren't nearly as important to me as I, as I thought they were when I got them. And so today, today still being clean and sober is the most important thing in my life. I'm now a cancer survivor. So I've gotten two mulligans. I've hit them both down the middle. Good swings on them, you know. And, and so I look at my profession and stuff as something that I do today. It's really not who I am. And before it was who I was, you know, and I wasn't ever going to add up. So I was going to be chasing my tail a long time. And your friends back then, I know your true friends Mm -hmm. are still your friends today. And I know that, you know, they're obviously so thankful for what you went through. And when you think about it, we talked about this off the top. You had an opportunity at a young age to perhaps become a great, well-known PGA Tour player. And, and certainly might have been a big name and, and impacted, right, lots of people. Do you stop and think of the way your life went, how many people you have really impacted by what you went through and your willingness to share that? Well, it's a thousandfold. You know, it's a totally different world that I live in. You know, it's a secret world of anonymity. And so you're talking about when you're in a room full of alcoholics and addicts, you're talking about saving people's lives, and they're saving my life. They're giving a a father back to his kids or kids back to their parents. So you're talking about really important stuff. You know, and to be honest with you, hitting a ball with a stick really isn't that important. 
and isn't. And teaching someone to hit a ball with a stick really isn't that important. That's not a life-changing thing. Uh, when I had cancer and I, I moved to Houston, Texas to go to MD Anderson to have all my treatment, you know, that's all they do is treat cancer patients. When I walked in that building, they're doing something important. That's really important. Teaching a golf pro or tour pro is a gift, and it's kind of an honor. But we're not curing cancer, you know. And so when you look at people that are in recovery and you see a daughter get their mother back or a son get their father or mother back or vice versa, and you see the joy of that and the relief and, and what it does for people's lives, what it's done for my life. You know, my brothers have a brother back. I have two sisters, by the way, that are much younger than I, so I want to correct that they were just boys. But golf-wise, I think I was 9 or 10 when they were born, so it was four boys for a while. But they have a brother back, and, and you know, my sons have a, a father, and my wife has a husband, and Toscana has an employee, you know, that's... Uh, suits up and shows up and so those are things that really are become much more important golf is a great avenue for me because you know when you're drinking and drugging you basically turn your back on this thing which i did when i got sober i needed golf and it didn't turn its back on me or the people in it so i owe everything really to golf a lot of people get sober and, you know, have no jobs and are unemployed and are riding bikes to meetings and stuff. And I draw great strength and inspiration from those people. You know, when I was growing up, my biggest decision was, could I remember one of the three account numbers I was going to sign in my dad's name, you know, at the three clubs I was buying a hot dog at? That was my, you know, I had a really tough childhood, boy. It's hard to believe I made it this far, you know, growing up at Wingfoot and out here at Thunderbird, you know. So, you know, I had a couple, you know, I think it was H42 was at Waikagil, CH1 was the Wingfoot one, you know. So I had some tough decisions to make. So I'm surrounded by people that have so much less than I have, but they have what I want. And it's got nothing to do with money and things and stuff. It's the gift of recovery and sobriety. So I go to meetings six days a week, and I go there to get grounded. You know, I get there to realize that it's a privilege for me to come here and work here. It's a privilege to, to them ask me to work here and so I look at life totally different. I don't have any sense of entitlement. I'm lucky to be doing what I'm doing. And I don't ever want to go back to the other way because I don't fear a, a drink or a drug. I, I fear the self-loathing and the self-hatred that it created. And I don't feel that today. Well, certainly an inspirational story from Bill Harmon. He conquered the drugs, the alcohol, and then cancer came calling. Bill shares that story in just a sec. And while we're here in the desert, going to head out to Lakita and connect with photographer Channing Benjamin. Spend a little time out at the quarry. Our show with Channing drops next Wednesday right here. If you're a stats geek and crave analysis paralysis, this is not the podcast for you. Welcome back to Slice with Brian Bushlack. If you or someone you know has overcome drugs and alcohol, well, you know how life-changing that is, and we appreciate Bill Harmon for sharing his story with us, a story he shares every day in AA meetings right here in the desert. 
You know, things were going pretty good for Bill until springtime three years ago when he learned he had yet another challenge to overcome. When you got the cancer diagnosis a couple years ago, Mm -hmm. after what you'd been through, what you'd conquered in your life, when you got that diagnosis, it has to shake you no matter what you've been through. But what was your mindset? Did you feel like because I have overcome alcoholism and I continue to to beat that, that I can beat this? What was your what was going through your well, mind? I, oddly enough, those are very uh, strange words when you hear it. You know, you have cancer. It doesn't it really it doesn't give you a warm, fuzzy feeling. Initially, it didn't scare me very much. And one of the reasons it didn't really scare me is that one of the things I've found over the course of time is that my life has been so good that I don't fear death. Because I already kind of died, you know, back 26, 7 years ago. But when I started finding out about the treatment, because I had a big tumor on the base of my tongue, and, and when I started realizing the compromising nature of the treatment then I got real scared not that I would die just that when they treat you in the throat area it's very compromising it's painful takes a long time and so you wonder if you have what it takes to be honest with you do I have what it takes to go through this pain and uh, you know not being able to eat and all kinds of weird stuff and that scared me but I used my recovery program to get through it and it was one appointment at a time one day at a time one chemo at a time one radiation at a time and I tried to bring because I was you know you're afraid you're scared and and so I tried to bring intention rather than wake up in the morning oh god I gotta go to radiation it's gonna be the worst day of my life I'd say you know what you get to go to radiation today and it's gonna be one less that you gotta do so I would try to go there where the sense, uh, rather than emotional doom and gloom, as this is something I got to do, it's going to get me one day closer to treatment being over. So I tried to bring good intentions to each appointment. And I'd say I was successful probably 90% of the time. You know, you have days where you just get, it's exhausting to be positive all the time when you've got your ass kicked. <laughs> and some days you want to just say, I remember when I got back one day, they told me that the two months after treatment would be the worst because of radiation still uh, scorching my throat, and it was. And I was home about six weeks, and, and I thought I was starting to get better, and I had a three- or four-day stretch for the worst I'd ever had, you know. And my wife came home, and she's a cancer survivor, which, is, which I was lucky because she knew how to handle it. And she looked at me she said how you doing I said I'm just frustrated you know I thought it'd be better by now in the last three or four days I'm really bad and she started to give me a pep talk I said I want to hear it I'm, I'm not in a good mood I'm not in the enchanted forest right now I'm upset I'm discouraged I'm disappointed give me 15 minutes and I'll be fine but right now I don't need a pep talk I don't want to hear anything good because it ain't good right now you know being the cancer survivor, she knew that. She smiled at me, said, I'll be in the room when you come back. You know, And I said, I swear, in 15 minutes I'll be fine. But my point was sometimes you just have to say, you know what, this sucks. <laughs> but you can't live there. And I didn't live there. So I, I always viewed that as uh, driving through a bad emotional neighborhood. Just don't park there. Just keep driving through. So 
So I had, I had had the tools to do all that stuff, and for the most part, I, I'd give myself an A plus as a as a patient and grinding it out. And I'm lucky by nature; I'm not a victim, so I have that. I've never been much of a whiner or a victim, and so that's lucky. If you're if you have that going against you, it's really going to be much harder. So everything you've been through translates to this game that we love and and uh, whether you're a 25 or a 15 or a 5 or you're a PGA Tour pro there's always another level right there's another place to take this game and people take it so seriously but you said you know we're out here hitting a ball with a stick well, so how do you how do you translate that out here to is, the range it is a very passionate game and it is an addiction by the way so i totally understand that because i went to a a long period where I was tortured by golf. It was one of the reasons I drank and drugged so much because I couldn't couldn't handle being the terrible golfer I'd become. I didn't make that, you know the correlation. It might have something to do with the drinking and drugging bill. And so I think because of what I've been through, I've been to hell and I don't want to go back. And so when I have a student that is slumping and really frustrated, I get it. I know exactly how they feel. And I know that staying, digging that hole and furnishing it is not going to be the way to do it. You have to slowly work your way out of it. So it's actually helped me immensely as a teacher of golf because to me, golf is kind of like an addiction, really. And it's good when it's good and it's bad when it's bad. And and I don't care who you are. If you play golf, playing golf good is more fun than playing golf bad. And if you like playing bad, then you're a better person than I am because I don't like playing bad. So you got to work at it. And, and fortunately, I have a lot of good students that like to work at it. And it's no different, really, than the world of recovery. If I could say to one person all the great things about recovery and they don't get it, and I could say the same things to the next guy. I could tell the next guy to go stand on his head on Highway 111 at noontime and spit nickels, and if they're ready to get better, they'll do it, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So I don't really know. I'm a big believer that I'm kind of a vehicle, but the student deserves the credit. They're the ones that have to make the changes, and if you play golf, Brian, you know it's not always good and it's not always fun. So I like to put the spotlight on the student, and it's, I'm just lucky that every now and then I guess right and get them playing better. <laughs> well, you've helped a lot of people on and off the course, um, and you also work with a PGA Tour pro. You work with Bill Haas. Mm-hmm. Um, you're uh, the son of your great friend, the, the fifth Harmon brother, I guess we call yeah. him, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 So what's that like? I mean, because uh, I know you joke that it's it's almost more pressure because you don't want to screw him up, right? I mean, how do you balance, you know, working with a pro and then working with people out here that aren't pros? Well, it's much harder to work with a tour pro. People think that'd be easy, but their life is in your hands. Their livelihood is in their hands. And really, if you let's say, helped a tour pro uh, one stroke around, that could be millions of dollars. But conversely, if the stroke average goes up a stroke around, they don't have a job. So the teaching of the tour pro appears to be glamorous until they miss three straight cuts, and then it's not so glamorous. So you see a lot of... um, you know, I think this is not going to come out right, but I kind of do feel this. We have a lot of chess beaters in our profession now that they're always there when the player plays good, but you can't find them when they miss four straight cuts. Mm-hmm. The reality is we're still the same teacher through both of them. 
And so I always felt that you did your best best work when things weren't going good. And when it is going good, I prefer to see the teacher give the limelight back to the player. But that's just my style. So, Well, we appreciate you sharing your story. You're an inspiration. And uh, I hope that what we're doing today... Uh, has a positive impact because you know that in doing this, obviously you share your story and somebody out there we know across America or somewhere around the world is going to hear your story. Somebody out there will listen to what I said. And for whatever reasons, they'll say, you know what? That guy just told my story. I need to get help. The story is a little bit different, but the feelings and the emotions and the way alcohol and drugs ravages individuals and families and pretty much everybody around them someone will hear this and say hey that guy just told my story and i hope they get help like i did a golf legend sharing his story and there's no doubt bill has probably impacted more people than even he knows and we sure appreciate his time of course uh after the interview he joked that we we hadn't even talked about swing theory (laughs) so maybe next time i don't think Bill and Butch combined could fix my swing. That's how bad it is, but we'll try next time I'm at Toscana. Bill, thanks for joining us. And speaking of next time, our next episode of Slice drops on Wednesday, March 13th. We'll head out to La Quinta to the quarry. What an immaculate setting that is. We'll sit down with noted golf course photographer Channing Benjamin. He's got a great story going one-on-one with Justin Timberlake. We'll share the outcome of that battle. Thanks for the download. More next time on Slice. Thanks for downloading Slice, a presentation of Feedback Media. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Full disclosure, our legal department doesn't allow mulligans. 